Well, as you know, the last few weeks we've been going through the book of Ephesians, and and uh, today we're going to be beginning with uh, the chapter 4 in the book of Ephesians. And I've entitled this message, Grow Up in Every Way Into Him. Because over the, the first three chapters of Ephesians, Paul is describing to us our riches in Christ. He is describing to us how what God has accomplished has brought unity to the Jews and to the Gentiles, that we are one people, not two separate people. And he spent that entire time talking about how we've been made brand new, that, that our our, our inheritance is according to the riches of Christ. And it's been very uh, informational over the last three chapters. He's just been telling us about what God has accomplished in the mystery of salvation, what He's done through Jesus. And like I said, they were informational. And, and I tell you what, that's a, some great information to have. That's the kind of stuff that encourages your heart. It builds you up in your spirit to know what has been accomplished inside of you. But now... Paul is going to get into some, some meat and potatoes. He's, this is the instructional part of this letter to the Ephesians. Before he was giving us some great information, and he says, now, based on this information, this is what you need to do, the instructions for us. And he urges us to live according to our calling, to live into unity, to grow up in every way into him. This is the title, this is the, the chapter where he speaks about putting on our new self. You know, and it reminds me, has anybody ever seen the movie Grease in here? Has everyone seen the movie Grease? Do you remember Danny Zuko, you know, John Travolta? He meets, he meets uh, Olivia Newton-John on the beach, and he's one person, but then he gets back to school, and he acts like somebody else. See, he wasn't acting like who he really was. He's putting on this show, this facade. And that's kind of how Christians are when... We get saved. We get made brand new inside of us, but we begin to act like who we used to be. We haven't put on the new self. Instead, we're, we're putting on this show. We're kind of acting like old Danny Zuko trying to put on a show, be someone that we're not. But as Christians, we're called to put on the new self. Let's live who we are. So as we get started, let's look at the, the first few scriptures in, in, in Ephesians chapter 4. In Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1 through 3, he says, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Since Paul was a prisoner for the Lord, he said, therefore, I, therefore, I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling. He says, I am a prisoner. And I find this kind of cool because it's a total, totally dual meaning. We found out that right now that Paul is literally a prisoner of Christ. He is literally in a Roman prison right now. It's probably at the end of the book of Acts when he gets, when he gets taken and put in prison and he's waiting to stand before Herod and all those, those people uh, for Caesar. Even he calls on Caesar. He's probably writing somewhere around there. And he writes from prison to the Ephesians, and he says, I, a prisoner of the Lord. But also, I think what he's meaning too is that it's not so much in the sense that he's physically imprisoned, but in the sense that in his obedience, he's a prisoner to the Lord as well. You see, when you're someone's prisoner, they have complete control over what you do. They have complete complete control over your actions. They have complete control over everything in your life. If you want to do something, you have to have permission from those who have imprisoned you. 
Anybody that knows someone that's in prison can tell you about that. They can't do anything. They're completely locked down. And the only way they can do anything is if they have permission and it's been approved by those who are over them. And I think that's what Paul's getting at. He says, I'm a prisoner to the Lord. He has complete control over my life. I don't do anything without his approval or his permission. My life belongs to Jesus. In 1 Corinthians 6, 19-20, it says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. How many know that when you go and buy something, you consider it yours? When you go to the store and, and, and you, buy a, you go to a car dealership and you buy a brand new car, you say, this is my car. I paid for it. It's my money. No, you can't use it. You can't have it. You can't just take my car whenever you want because I paid for it. It's mine. And the same thing is true with Jesus because he paid for your body. You were bought with a price. And that means that you are not your own anymore. You can't just do whatever you want, that you are a prisoner of the Lord. Now, I thank God this isn't like being a prisoner in our, in our state penitentiaries because that's not fun at all. But being a prisoner of the Lord, being a slave to righteousness, is an amazing thing. Paul also said that he was compelled to preach. He said that it tormented him to not do what he is called. In 1 Corinthians 9.16, he says, For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. You know, Paul was tormented if he was trying to run away from his calling in his life. And I think any of you that have felt the calling in your life, you know that feeling when you try to run away from it. I know when I was first called to be a pastor, it's not what I wanted to do. See, unlike Paul, I didn't just get up and start preaching the gospel and doing all the right things. I'm like, yeah, not so much, Lord. I'm going to do something else. I'm going to give you time to think about it. Come back with another option. You guys are laughing. Anybody ever? Am I the only person that's ever said that to God? But I tell you what, as the Holy Spirit was working on me, as I was fighting, I was kicking against the goad. It was tormenting me on the inside. I, I knew that this was what my calling was. This is what I was supposed to be doing. And any time that I'm not doing that, it's, it's terrible. It's, it's, it's a heavy weight on my spirit. Even today, as I go through the season, I recognize that I have to be bivocational. I recognize that, that that's part of the season of my life that I'm in. But when I'm at work and I'm not working in the ministry, even then, it's a weight on my soul as I, I realize that this is not what I'm called to do. I recognize that it's necessary, and I'll continue to do it so I can continue doing this. But at the same time, there's a difference when I go to work versus when I'm, when I'm ministering to you guys, when I'm fulfilling my, my calling, there's a difference. And in much the same way, the Bible says that we are slaves to righteousness. In Romans 6, 17-18, it says, But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the hearts to the standard of the teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, you have become slaves to righteousness. And I never understood this verse for the longest time because I, what does that mean to be a slave to righteousness? But God showed me that to be a slave to anything, is like we said earlier, to be a prisoner to anything means that they are in complete control. If you're a slave, you can't do anything without permission of the master. And that means that if we're a slave to righteousness, 
That means that righteousness dictates everything that we do. Righteousness guides all of our steps. Righteousness controls what we do with our bodies. That's what it means to be a slave to righteousness. That's what it means to be a prisoner for the Lord. Is that all that you do is, is according to His Word and His calling on your life. So he says that I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called. What does that mean to walk in a manner worthy of your calling? Well, first we need to recognize that we've been called to holiness. By grace, we have been given a new life and we're called to walk in it. As we'll see later as he talks about putting on the new self, that's part of your calling. When you, you were called to be saved, you were be called to be made brand new, but that means you're called to live that out. And in the next few lines, he begins to describe what that may look like as you're, as you're walking out your calling in a manner worthy of it. He says that we should be doing it with all humility and gentleness. Other translations use the word meekness there. And gentleness is another good word for it, but I think meekness describes it even better because meekness is the word used uh, by the Jews, the word that's been translated that was used for uh, when you break a horse. A horse that is well-trained, that is broken, is considered meek. And the reason is, is because how many know that just because the horse is behaving, just because the horse is, is being gentle and it's being kind, just because it's doing what its master is telling it to do, doesn't mean that it doesn't have power. That horse at any time could overpower the person that's trying to control it. It can throw it off. I mean, if you think about it, a horse weighs a few thousand pounds, and we weigh, you know, the heaviest of us weighs, you know, less than 300 usually. And we're not going to be able to overpower any horse. It doesn't matter if you're a four or 500 pound guy full of muscle. How many know a 2,500 pound horse or however much they weigh, 2,000 pounds is going to knock you on your butt? But they're meek. They act in gentleness. They, they behave, but they have great power. It's another word they use for a gentle breeze. A breeze was meek because in the wind there is great power. We can see and through tornadoes and hurricanes how much power the wind really has. But a gentle breeze is, is behaving meekly because it has that power, but it's not exercising it. That's how we need to live our lives. We have great power. We have great uh, authority inside of us. But we need to use it in correct ways. And we'll talk about that later when he starts speaking about speaking the truth in love. Being meek. And then he says we need to be, uh, walk with patience. Bearing with one another in what? In love. We need to be being patient and bearing each other's burdens in love. Some of us are farther along than others. Some of us are more mature in the faith than others. So some of us might have areas that we're still struggling with. And that's not the time for us to be impatient with people, to, to wag our fingers at people and tell them that they're not doing well, that they, they need to get it together. But it's a time where we can be patient with them and lift them up, bear them in love. And then it says we need to be eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. You know, we need to be eager to be maintaining unity in the body of Christ. Our vision, our goal should be to work with other life-giving churches to maintain that unity. Our goal should be to, to help them and support them and work as one body. We may be individual churches, but we're one body. We're one church of Christ. You know, if we will live from the new life placed inside of us 
and will be obedient in the Lord. You know, that's the other part of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. It's just being obedient. Just earlier, a couple chapters earlier, Paul says for, in Ephesians 2, chapter 10, that we are his workmanship and created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, when God has a calling for your life and he's asking you to do something, when you walk it out, when you do it, you know it's not based on your talents, your skills, your abilities, but it's based on him working inside of you and being obedient to that is part of walking in a manner worthy of your calling. Just be obedient. If we will live from the new life placed inside of us and live holy, if we will be obedient to the Lord, then you will be walking in a manner worthy of your calling. But if you'll do neither of these, if, you'll, if, if you have a, a life-changing experience and you get saved, but you refuse to live holy, you refuse to do what God's saying, then you're rejecting what God has done inside of you and what He wants to do through you. And then in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, it says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you are called to the hope, to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God, one Father, Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You know, verse 3 of this, this uh, last, uh, or chapter 4, verse 3 says, We are eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And he begins to go in, in verse 4 and begin to explain why we have unity. <clears throat> Paul in this letter is primarily speaking and referring to the unity of the Jews and the Greeks. Or the Jews and the Gentiles. Because he was speaking about how salvation came and made us one. Now we're under the same banner. We're under the same salvation. We're all sinners and we all need Jesus. But this also can be applied to the body of Christ today in these individual denominations that we have. We have a multitude of denominations with, with some with, with major beliefs that are different than ours that I, would, that I would even argue would move them out of the realm of Christianity. And there are some that have you know, minor, minor disbeliefs that shouldn't impact our, our fellowship. We have minor uh, interpretations, different interpretations of what the Scripture has to say. But we should be able to operate in harmony in a bond of peace as long as we stick with some of the, the key things if, we deal, if, we, if we're on the same page about certain things. And that's what Paul begins to talk about is that we have one of these things and he gives a, a list here. And because of this, we should be in unity because of these things. He says that, <clears throat> that there is one body. There is one body. We are individually churches. There are small churches across the country, and we are individual churches. We are independent, autonomous units, but we are still part of a single body, the body of Christ. We all make up the hands and feet of the body of Christ. And Paul's saying that, you know what? Unity is important. We're never going to reach the world if we are broken and we're teaching different things. If Christianity isn't the same thing everywhere, if it's completely different, and one we believe, you know, in one version of the true version of Christianity, we believe that, that God is Jesus, and he came down and he died for us, and that's the only way to salvation. But there's other places that claim to be Christianity, and they don't say the same thing. They say, oh no, you know, Jesus did a pretty good job, but there's still some things you have to do. How many know that that's not unity? That's, that's a broken body. But Paul's saying that there is one body and we're individual churches that make it up. And, we, and because of this, we should be operating in unity. And then he says that there is one spirit. There is just one spirit. 
And it's the Holy Spirit that he's speaking of. And it's that Spirit that testifies with our spirit that we are saved. And he is the one who worked in us. He is the executor of salvation in our lives. Ephesians 1, 13-14 says, In Him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in Him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. Next, he says that we are called to one hope. There is only one hope for men and women. And that's Jesus. Jesus is the only way to salvation. There is no other name in which man will be saved. Acts 4.12 says, There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And then in John 14.6, Jesus said this, He said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Me. That's the one hope that we have. There's, there is only one hope. There is no other way to salvation. We are not operating in unity when we are offering different plans. You know, here's, here's, the, here's plan A. This is the, the platinum plan. This is what you really should have. But if it's, if it's too expensive for you, why don't you, you know, we've got the bronze plan. Just try to live a good enough life. There's only one hope. And then it goes on to say that there is one Lord. Jesus Christ alone is Lord. He is the King of kings. If anybody wants to elevate anybody else above Him, then they're wrong. They're not operating in unity. Revelations 19.16 says, On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. In 1 Timothy 6.15 it says, Which he will display at the proper time, he who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And then in Philippians 2.10-11 it says, So that at the time of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus Christ is the one and only Lord, the King of kings, the Lord of lords. There is no name above His. One Lord. And then it says that we have one faith. You see, what he's speaking here is, is there's only one belief. There's only one set of doctrines. There's only one gospel that was given by Jesus. There's not a bunch of different ones. There's not a, a, a choose-your-own-gospel where you can pick out parts that you want. We, we have one faith. And these were given to the writers of the New Testament under divine inspiration. And like I said, in, in the individual churches today, there are some manners of interpretation and some matters of practice in minor non-salvation issues. Some churches believe slightly different things. But all true Christians believe that Jesus is the only way to salvation. True Christians believe that He's 100% God and 100% man, that He was born of a virgin, that He died for our sins, and that He rose again to give us new life. You know, when we can, when we can operate in unity on, on, on that, that faith, that, that's the gospel in a nutshell, then we're good. Like I said, there's other minor things that, we, that different denominations have, have uh, different beliefs on, but as long as we're solid on that one faith, we're good to go. We can operate together. We can, we can have fellowship together, and we can reach the world for Christ together as individual churches for one body. But there are others out there that look like the real thing, but they're not really. They don't believe these things. They're not on salvation. They have a different stance, and that's a problem. Next, we see that there's one baptism. 
we are baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And this represents their, their different roles in salvation because it's the, the Father that planned out salvation. And the Son carried out the plan of salvation. He came down here and He fulfilled God's plan. And He died on the cross for us. And then it's the, the Holy Spirit who is the executor of salvation in our lives. In 1 Corinthians 12.13 it says, For in one Spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews are Greeks, slaves are free, and all were made to drink of one Spirit. There's one baptism. And the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit were baptized into the body of Christ. And we can't start picking and choosing and adding others and maintain unity. And then he says, there is one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. That's a key point. There is only one God. We can't believe in different gods. We can't put other gods above the one true God. There are not different gods for different things. You know, that's a, you know, that's a problem with when you go to places like India to minister they're, they actually they have no problem with Jesus and God. They just want to add him to their list. It's explaining to him that he's the only one that becomes a problem. There is only one God. Even the Trinity, as we speak of the, the different persons of God, they're different persons fulfilling different roles, but it is still one God. They are the same. You see, these are the things that bring unity to the body. This is the things why we should be united in the body. If we are in, in agreement on these things, then we are as one. But when we differ from these things, peace and unity is broken. That's what we see with denominations that believe fundamentally different things. We can't have peace, we can't have unity with them because they, they are outside of what, what was preached in the gospel. And then in Ephesians 4, 7-10 through 10, it says, But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. In saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens, that he might fill all things. I am so glad that grace is giving according to the measure of Christ's gift. Anybody glad alongside with me? I am so glad that it's not according... It's not measured by anything that I can do or accomplish. But it's according to Christ's gift. It's also great news to any of those who think that you don't measure up. Any of those who think that they, that, that they don't measure up to what God has from them. They've got to get right with God or all these things because it's not according to their standard of measure. It's according to His standard of measure. Which I want you to know is infinite. There's not a bad enough person in this world that Christ's gift does not cover. It allows us to receive grace, to receive that brand new life inside of us, and it replaces our own. That's the, great, that's the greatest news of the gospel, is that you're made brand new. And then it says, when Jesus ascended, we're talking about when he was resurrected, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Paul right here is referring to, and I forget which scripture it is, I think it's in the, the Psalms, uh, but he's referring to, he's, he's quoting the Old Testament. And it's such a great verse because it says, when he ascended on high, when, when Jesus was resurrected, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. You see, before Jesus died and was resurrected, we were all captive. 
We were all enslaved to sin. We were enslaved to Satan and the enemy and his plan for our life is what had control of us. But when Jesus rose again, he destroyed the power of sin. He destroyed the power of death and he destroyed the power of Satan over us who believe in him. We were a slave before. We were captives before. But Jesus comes down here and it's like a military victory is what this is a picture of. Jesus went down, defeated death, and He came back up in tow with a host of captives. We were once enslaved, but now we're following along behind Jesus and we're free. We've been set free. He went behind enemy lines to rescue us and He pulled us out. And then He says He also gave gifts to men in the same time. Did you know that this is because of that, because he pulled us out and freed us from all that, he gave us gifts. One view of this is that we've been made whole, we've been made pure, we've been made victorious in him. That's a fantastic gift. We were once broken, but we've been put back together and given the victory on this earth. And then we also receive power in, this vic- in his victory. In 1 Corinthians 12, 7, it says, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. We receive power because Jesus Christ ascended. And in Acts 1, 8, it says, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. I want you to know that, that this victory where he pulls us out, we were once captive and powerless. Now we've been filled with the power of the Holy Spirit. He has freed us and made us strong in him. And the next part of these scriptures is basically Paul making the argument for the scripture that he's quoting, that he's using. He's saying, basically in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions, the earth? Because he who descended is the one who has also ascended far above all the heavens and he might fill all things. What he's talking about is that, what does this mean that he ascended? He's talking about Jesus. Jesus was above, but now he descended to the lower regions. He descended to earth. And not only that, Jesus descended from heaven to earth, but then he gave, he went even lower than that. He gave everything up. He was shamed. He was humiliated. He was stripped. He was beaten. And then they killed him. That's about as low as you can go on this earth. But then he rose again, far above the heavens, and he is seated at the right hand of God. He sat down and said, it is finished. He was victorious. He was triumphant. And we have that same victory. We have that same triumph in him. <clears throat> then Ephesians 4, 11 through 14, Paul goes on to say, he says, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. See, not only did he give gifts to men, but he also gave gifts of men. That's what he's talking about here. He says he gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, and teachers. You see, these are men that are gifted and called by God to perform a purpose in the body of Christ. And what's their purpose? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See, this is, this is, is going to freak some of you out because you guys all thought that the, the work of the ministry was to be done by the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and the teachers. But that's not true. 
They're there to equip you guys to do the work of the ministry. You see, the pastor's job is to train you and send you to do the work. They're not to do all the works themselves. They're not, it's not the pastor's job to save everybody in the city, but it's the pastor's job to train you and build you up and disciple you so that you can reach this city. You know, it's not the evangelist's job to win the world by themselves. But it's their job to train you how to evangelize people, how do you, to train you how to reach the lost. You see, these men have been gifted by God to teach others, to equip saints for them to do the work of the ministry, and they're there to build up the body of Christ. And then how long are they supposed to do this? Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. You know, we can stop doing this when everybody is a mature Christian. And not, not mature by our standards. Like, we see people that are like, man, they're a mature Christian. We look at Paul and we're like, Paul was a mature Christian. But he says, I'm not perfect yet. I haven't attained it. He was still working towards this goal. The truth is, Jesus is going to come back and we're going to have a revelation of who we really are. And at that point, the roles of these ministries will be fulfilled. But until then, that's what the roles of... These men were given to you to lift you up, to build you up. And the reason being is that we need to be prepared. The point is, is that as a body, each and every one of us individually need to be prepared to be grown up so that we can withstand a few things. It says that so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. You know, we need to be built up and encouraged and trained by these, by these men that God gives so that we, can, we don't just get tossed to and fro like children, the Bible says. We should be able to hear somebody speak and discern if it's, if it's aligned with the Word of God or if it's not. That's why we come to church and we hear the Word of God. So when we hear some crazy stuff on the radio, we can be like, wait a minute, that's not what the Bible says. Otherwise, you're going to hear crazy stuff on the radio and it sounds good. They make sense. And if, you have, if you're not equipped to deal with that, you may be led astray. You know, we don't ever want to be enticed by something that looks good but is fake. And if you're not equipped, then you can be led astray. It's kind of like mistaking pyrite. You know what pyrite is? Fool's gold? Anybody ever seen it? It's beautiful and it looks like gold. But it's like somebody selling you pyrite at the, what is it, something like $900 an ounce right now for gold? How many of you got taken for a fool if you buy pyrite at $900 an ounce? If you're willing to, I got some, I got some gold to sell if you guys want some. Yeah. Or, or cubic zirconia. Everybody seen cubic zirconia? Oh, it's beautiful. It looks, matter of fact, I have to admit, a lot of times, cubic zirconia looks better than a real diamond because cubic zirconia has the same clarity and cleanness as a really high-quality diamond. That, you know, that sparkle and that color refraction. But nobody wants to pay diamond prices for cubic zirconia because that's, that's, it looks good. It looks like the real thing, but it's a fake. When I was growing up as a kid, I lived in Dixon, Missouri, and we, my mom rented this house way out in the sticks. Dixon is a small rural town, and, and uh, so we moved out there, and when I went out there, and I, I probably, I don't know, I'm probably six or seven years old, somewhere around there, and there was this tree house. 
really was just a platform built up in a tree with a ladder up to it. And so we went out there and we saw this treehouse and it was really cool. But when we ran out there, we looked on the ground and the ground was covered in diamonds. I just knew they were diamonds. Just a pile of all these little diamonds. So I grabbed a little, you know, one of the little cool, like, bags with the little uh, zip ties. Not really zip ties, like the rope ties that pull, you know, what it looks like you should carry diamonds in. And I filled it all up when I was a kid. And I thought, I, I thought we were rich. We just found just a massive amount of diamonds. Well, I'm a kid. I was, I was a child, able to be tossed to and fro by, by waves and carried away by every wind of doctrine. I, I was... I was I was deceived by what I thought was diamond, what turned out to be broken glass. <laughs> little, it was almost, you know, security glass when it breaks, it's this little tiny square looking, that's, that's what it was, that's what it looked like. And I thought I had, but I was, I was a child, I didn't know any better. I had not been trained and equipped yet to know the difference between shards of glass and a diamond. And that's the point with, with this here, is that we need to be built up so that we're not led astray. We need to be built up so that we know better than picking up glass and thinking it's a diamond. Because the truth is that there's many denominations, there's many, there's many religions that call themselves Christians that are doing the same thing, that are offering something that looks so close to the real thing. But if you begin to talk to them about it, they believe different things. They don't believe that Jesus was God. Well, I want you to know if Jesus was just a man, he could have died for himself, but he couldn't have paid for your sins. He needed to be something more. Or they believe <clears throat> that Jesus is just part of the equation, but it's your works that assures your salvation. You see, it's these kind of things that are, that are, are leading to a, a disunity of the faith. But we need to be prepared so that when we hear stuff like that, that we understand that, no, that's not what the Bible says. Let's not be led astray. Even though it sounds good, it's not the real thing. <clears throat> but rather than being tossed to and fro, we should be speaking the truth in love. We're to grow up in every way into Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. You see, rather than being tossed to and fro, rather than, than doing these things, we should be building each other up, helping each other grow, speaking the truth to each other in love, and we're to grow into Him. So what is the truth? That's the question we have to ask ourselves. We're supposed to speak the truth to each other in love. Well, what is the truth? Well, let's refer to John 14, 16 again. We looked at it a little earlier. But Jesus says, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. You see, Jesus is the truth. And this, is, this truth that he's speaking about is in direct contrast to the deceit that is being referred to a couple of verses ago. This deceit here that can toss you to and fro. That's not what we need to be speaking and sharing. We need to be speaking the truth with one another. And that's Jesus. And the problem with today's society is, is that everybody thinks they have their own truth. And I know I've shared this, this quote from Mary Lefkowitz, but I think it's a brilliant quote and perfectly describes what's going on in today's world. But she's a professor at, at Wellesley College, and she said this, the notion that there are many truths might seem, well suited, might seem well suited to a diverse society, but when everyone is free to define truth as he or she prefers as at present, the result is an intellectual and moral shouting match in which the people with the loudest voices are most likely to be heard. 
See, that's the thing about truth. We all want to say, oh, I have my truth, you have your truth. The thing about truth is there can be only one. It's, it's like the, the Highlander. There can be only one. So if we know that there's one truth and Jesus is the truth, then what does it mean to speak it in love? You know, it's realizing that you can speak the truth, that you can speak Jesus, the gospel, and not do it in love. But to do it in love, what that means is to, to edify one another, to encourage one another, to lift each other up. When somebody is hurting, when somebody is failing, we don't point at them and condemn them for their failure, but we remind them that they're victorious in Christ. We remind them that they're free from the, the sin that they're dealing with, that they're victorious, that they are pure, that they've been made brand new instead of telling them how bad they are for where they're at. That's speaking it in love. Because the truth is that they're saved, they're forgiven that they're loved, they're victorious, they're overcomers, they're conquerors, that they're whole, that they're accepted. But the truth spoken not in love is the one who points out and shames and condemns. It's like the people that stand in the, on the side of the street or in front of a, a strip club or an abortion clinic and telling them that they're going to hell, that they're sinners. The truth is that, yeah, if they don't accept Jesus, they're going to hell. The truth is that if they're not made brand new, then that's their fate. But that's not in love. That's not the truth spoken in love. The truth spoken in love is despite what you're going through, God has a purpose for your life. God can fix whatever you're going through. God can make you whole. That's the truth spoken in love. And while we're operating in love like this, while we're speaking in love and lifting each other up, we're to grow. And matter of fact, when we speak to each other this way, we're helping each other grow. You know, when you tell somebody they're just a, a horrible failure and they're messing up, they're not going to grow. They're not going to get any better. They're just going to be ashamed and pushed down. But when you remind them that they, are, that they are forgiven, that they are victorious, that they have strength in Christ, that'll help them grow into them, grow into that. And then it says while we're living and operating like this individually, properly like this individually, we're also going to be helping the body grow. Because we're each doing our part and we're each working properly, then that makes the body grow so that it builds itself up on love. You see, love is, is, is the lifeblood of the church. You know, it's been discovered that an isolated, unloved baby, if you have a baby that you don't ever show it any love, you don't ever show it any affection, anything like that, that they don't grow properly. It's been determined that they're especially susceptible to disease when they're not loved. They don't grow properly. There's a, there's a part of their brain that develops differently when they're not loved. But babies who are loved and handled, they grow normally and they're stronger than those who are unloved. And the same thing happens in the body of Christ. When the body of Christ operates in love, it grows strong and healthy. But when it doesn't operate in love, it's susceptible to disease and breakdown. And then Ephesians 4, 17 through 19, he says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. I find it interesting when I read this that Paul, how many know that Paul is speaking to cultural Gentiles, to the Greeks. 
But then he says this to him. He says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do. He's no longer calling them Gentiles. You know, you used to be Gentiles is what he's saying, but that's not who you are anymore, so don't walk like they do. When you get saved, you are made brand new. You're no longer part of this earth, but you're a part of a heavenly kingdom. You are an alien and a sojourner in a foreign land at this point when you get saved. Peter spoke similar things to the Christian Jews scattered around the Roman Empire in 1 Peter 2, 9-12. He said, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once they were part of this world, but now they are God's people. And then Jesus said this about his disciples in John 15, 18-19. He said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of this world... But I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. When you become a Christian, you are no longer part of this world. Yes, you may live in it, but you are a part of a heavenly nation. It says those that are lost have futility of their minds. Their wisdom is compromised, is comprised of the wisdom of the world. You know, the, the people of this world try to understand the world. They try to, to look at it with intellectualism and science. They try to understand the world by all these things. And it's kind of like if there was a family of mice living in a piano. And they lived in this piano and they heard the music play every day. And they thought to themselves, this music is beautiful. It's wonderful. And he says, you know, there's a, the great player is the one who's playing this music. And then one day, one of the little mice climbs up through the, through the piano and he gets to the top and he sees all these strings and he begins to observe that, wait a minute, the music only comes when the strings are vibrating. So he runs back down, down to the rest of the mice and says, you guys are crazy. You guys are, are talking about this great player. But really, it's not that that's making the music. What happens is, is the strings vibrate and make the music. This is science. This is how it works. And then a little while later, another mice climbs up there and he's doing some more research and he goes, wait a minute, it's not just the strings vibrating, but when the, the hammer hits the strings, the strings vibrate and it makes the music. So all you guys who are believing in the strings to make the music, you guys are all crazy. It's not the strings, it's the hammer that's making the music. You should be looking at that and paying attention to that. You see, these mice have tried to describe what's going on. And they see the results of the great player, as they refer to him. But how many know that, yeah, the strings vibrate to make the music, and a hammer hits the strings, but there's still somebody that has to orchestrate that. You know, in their futility of mind, they try to understand the world like these mice were in their little piano world. But it's still God playing the music. And unless they open their eyes to him, they'll never understand fully how it all works. You see, their understanding is dark and alienated from the life of God. And they are ignorant to God's love and His purpose for their life because they've hardened their hearts to Him. And then it says that they've been resisting Him so long that they've even become callous to it. I remember there was a time in my life where I'd done some, some bad stuff so long that it didn't even seem bad anymore. I'd become callous to it. And it also become callous to God trying to work on me, trying to tell me something different. If you, if you ignore God long enough, you can, you can push Him away and you become callous to Him trying to work in your life. 
But Paul is saying that from now on we shouldn't walk like this. Under the power of the Holy Spirit, we should live as, we, as we've been made brand new and not walk like the Gentiles do. In Ephesians 4, 20-24, he says, put on the new self. He says, but this is not the way that you learn Christ, assuming that you have heard about Him and were taught in Him as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds and put on the new self, created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. You know, I like that Paul uses, I like the way words are used sometimes in the Bible because they, they, they portray a completely different meaning. Most of us read this and say, that is not the way you learned of Christ. In our head we see that's the way you've learned of Christ. But that's not what he says. He says, that is not the way you learned Christ. He's not referring to knowledge of Christ because, you know what, in the United States, there's not very many people that haven't heard of Christ. But there's a whole lot less people that know Christ. What he's saying here, it's not the way you learn Christ. It's not the way you met Christ. It's not the way you know Christ. It's a relationship, not, a, not a, a, an intellectual thing. It's not, I know of Christ, but I know Christ. He said that because of this, you should be walking as someone who knows Christ, putting on the new self. He says, assuming that you've, you've heard about him and were taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, which they had been. This is, this is a church that Paul had planted. And in the beginning of the chapter, in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, he begins to describe to them, Jesus in 13, uh, Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, it says, In him you also, when you heard the word of the truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promise, Holy Spirit. They heard the gospel. They knew this stuff. So because of that, put off your old self. When you hear the truth of the gospel, something inside of you changes. It's a supernatural change. The heart of stone is removed and a heart of flesh is put inside of you. You are fundamentally and supernaturally changed on the inside. A miracle takes place. And when that happens, we put out the old man, who we used to be. He is dead buried with Jesus Christ. And we have a new life inside of us when, when we are risen with Jesus Christ. You see, before this happened, all you could do was live out the life of the old man. There was no other option. But now we can put that man behind us because we have a different source, a different foundation on the inside. He says, let's put on the new self, which is created after the likeness of God and true righteousness and holiness. In Ephesians 4, 25 through 29, what time do we have? Uh oh. In Ephesians 4, 25 through 29, it says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as it fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. You see, like I said when I started this message, now we're getting to the part where Paul is giving us instruction on how to live our life. He says, put on the new self, and this is what it should look like. He says, therefore, since we've put on the new self, let's put away the old self. Let's put away falsehood and let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. 
You see, what he's asking us to do is, is don't act like something you're not. Like we talked about earlier with when I used, talked about John Travolta in Greece acting like somebody he wasn't. He's saying put that fake person off and be who you are. The new person you are in Christ. Put on that new self. You know, we'd all find it a little bit odd if you go out to watch your favorite football team. Who's your favorite football team, Chris? Uh, Detroit, Lions. Detroit Lions. Can you imagine? You sit down, you got all your snacks in front of you, you got all your friends over, you're going to watch the game, and they all come out in tutus <laughs> instead of pads. You'd be like, what game am I watching? Can you imagine that? That's kind of what it's like. When we're supposed to have our new self put on and we come out looking like our old self. We were, that's just not right. That's not who you are. Why? You're supposed to be a football player. Why are you wearing a ballerina's outfit? You're supposed to be a Christian. Why are you acting like someone who's of this world? Live out your new life. Put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another. You know, the only way that we'll ever be able to grow and live together and work together as a body is if we are speaking the truth to one another. You know that if, you're, if your body lied to you when you touch something hot, if you want to reach a, a hot pan in your body, <laughs> I know what you're thinking about, stop. <laughs> Why would you do that? <laughs> but uh, if you reached out and grabbed a hot pan and your body didn't tell you it was hot, it lied to you and said, oh no, that feels perfectly fine, you would damage your body. The same way in the body of Christ, when we, when we don't speak to each other in truth and love, when we lie to one another, when, we, when, you, when you lie to somebody and tell them that they're condemned and that they'll never measure up, that's, that's breaking the body down. It'll never grow. It'll never work properly that way. And he says, be angry and do not sin. You know it's okay to be angry? There's a, there's a such thing as righteous anger. I mean, have you ever heard... Uh, People talk about the what would Jesus do? You ever seen those little things? And when you're acting, when somebody's acting a little honorary, like, what would Jesus do? You know, apparently, getting upset and tearing down the temple and throwing over tables is a valid option. You know, Jesus was angry at what was going on there. He was angry at the sin of what was going on there. You can be angry and not sin. You can be angry at sin going on in people's lives. You can be angry at the devil who's trying to impact people. That's why it says be angry and do not sin. But how many know that if you get angry at somebody and you begin to slander them and talk about them and do stupid things, when you get angry in that way, then you're sinning. That's, that's not righteous anger. That's just sin. And then he goes on to say, <clears throat> let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands. How many know that stealing and thieving is a quality of the enemy? In John 10.10 it says, The thief comes only to steal, kill, and destroy, but I came that they may have life and have it more abundantly. Thieving, stealing, that's not, that's not the life of a Christian. That's not the new life placed inside of you. That's, that's the life of your old self. That's the, the enemy coming out. And then he says, let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as good for building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. You know, what you say is a great indication of who you are and what you believe. Tearing people down, talking behind their backs, gossiping, those are qualities of, of people that are still part of this world. 
But you're not of this world. You've been made brand new. So let's have wholesome talk, encouraging talk come out of our mouths. Amen? And we'll go ahead and finish up here. In Ephesians 4, 30-32, it says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. You know, to, to grieve the Holy Spirit is to reject what he says. Paul says, don't grieve the Holy Spirit. So what does that mean? Well, in Romans 8, 16 through 17, it says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And then in John 16, 8 through 11, it says, And when He comes, this is speaking of the Holy Spirit, it says, When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment, concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see Me no longer, and concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judge. You see, the, the purpose of the Holy Spirit is to come and speak to us, to testify with us. He's to bear witness with our spirit that we are children of God. It says that He will convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe Him. He will convict the world saying, hey, you need to believe in Jesus. You need a Savior. You know, that's oftentimes that's misunderstood that He's going to convict the world concerning sin, meaning He's going to point out everybody's sin. That's not what it says. It says that he's, it's because that they don't believe in Jesus. That's what it means. It's concerning sin, you need Jesus. You need a Savior. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. The Holy Spirit testifies to you that you are righteous. And the reason that you are righteous is because Jesus died and paid the price and he's sitting at the right hand of the Father. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. He's saying that the, the devil's been dealt with. He's been judged. He testifies with us. And all these things he's telling us is to let us know that you've been made brand new. So when we act in a way unbecoming of that, we're grieving the Holy Spirit. He's like, man, I've got to tell you again. Why don't you just listen to me? I'm trying to tell you. It's like when you tell your kids to do something and you have to tell them 14 times, after a while they're grieving you a little bit because you told them and you told them and you told them and they're still doing something else. The same way is the Holy Spirit testifies to you you're brand new. Don't grieve Him by living like you're not. And then he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. You see, the reason why we can behave this way towards one another is right there. God in Christ forgave us. Everything that we do with one another should be out of a response of that. But Pastor Wayne, you just don't know how annoying they are. You don't know what they're doing. Well, Think about the things that you were doing to Christ, that you were doing in this world beforehand, but God still forgave you. Let's forgive them. Let's treat them like God treats you, that he loves you and respects you and cares for you and shows you that no matter what we've done. In John 13, 34 through 35, it says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you. You are also to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You know, let's go ahead and, and resolve to live this kind of life. Let's, let's resolve to live from the new self and, and show one another love. Let's, you know, when people look at our lives, there should be no doubt that we're a Christian. You've probably heard it said that if it was all of a sudden illegal to be a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? 
And let's make it so that there is. Amen? Amen. Let's go ahead and stand to our feet.